grateful. Well, our series is called Cross Reference, and we are basically taking a look through the scripture and just studying the Bible for understanding. Understanding the Bible is very, very important. And this little series, hopefully it'll help you understand the plan of the scripture, the plot of the Bible, because when you understand that, you can better understand the purpose of the Bible uh, in your own life as you read and you study God's Word. There's great value in a series like this. Some people think it's a little slow, maybe mundane, but, but we'll make it. Because as you see the plan of the Scripture unfold, you begin to see its cross-references unfold as well. God's Word is written with the end in mind from the beginning and with the cross at the center of it all. So with that in mind, in this series, we're following a little outline, and uh, this is it. First of all, the law. Everyone say law. We talked about that last week, Genesis to Deuteronomy. Everyone say land. Reign. That's the period of the kings. We'll talk about that tonight. Rebuild. And then we have some other sections of the Old Testament that are kind of meshed in with what we just talked about. Everyone say poetry. There's beautiful, beautiful songs and, and poetic writing in the Old Testament. Everyone say prophecy. That's one of the sections everybody gets bogged down with, probably right up there next to all the begats. And we get bogged down, but we'll talk about that. And then we go to the New Testament. Everyone say Christ, church, teaching. That's all the epistles. And then we end the scripture with a note of triumph. Everyone say triumph. And that's the book of Revelation. So last week we talked about law. The first five books of the Old Testament are often referred to as the books of Moses because tradition tells us that he wrote them. We call them the Pentateuch, which means five books, but the Jews call them the Torah because Torah means teaching, doctrine, instruction, standard, or law. God's law is the most important feature of everything you can find in the first five books. It's more important than any of the familiar Bible stories that we know and love. Because it's in his law that God reveals his master plan for a people who will share his truth with the world. And so there's familiar stories here, but there's also important signposts that point ahead to an Old Testament nation, but even further to a New Testament church. Probably the biggest one of those signposts is a building called the Tabernacle with so many beautiful types and shadows. Now, tonight we want to move on. Everyone say land. This is the section of Scripture, Joshua through Ruth, just three books. The first five books of the Old Testament cover about 2,500 years. And these next three books cover about 500 years. From the time Joshua conquers the promised land, all through the period when Israel was ruled by judges. And God first promised the land of Canaan to Abraham in Genesis 12. He reaffirmed that promise to Isaac and to Jacob and to all of those, their descendants. Every book of the Torah repeatedly refers to God's promise to give them the land. In Deuteronomy, the last book that we talked about last week, Moses' farewell sermon uses the word land almost 200 times and the word possess more than 50 times. 
So when we come out of the books of the law and we enter into the book of Joshua, we've got a new generation on the threshold of a new experience holding on to an old promise that is yet to be fulfilled. Very similar to where we feel we are in prophetic times and understanding. We are a last day's generation, but it has been preached and prayed and prophesied into us that this generation is going to see powerful and miraculous things. And so I feel like I want to enter into that and I'm holding on to those promises that have been spoken over the church. When we look at the book of Joshua, it covers a period of about 20 years of Joshua's leadership. Israel finally enters their promised land. Basically, the first half of the book details all their military conquests. And then the last half of Joshua covers the distribution of the land to the 12 tribes. So it's, it's split roughly in half. Back then, Canaan was just a, a seemingly insignificant little land bridge between two huge world empires, two great cultures, Egypt in the south, Mesopotamia to the north. But that little sliver of land on the end of the Mediterranean Sea was about to become the center of politics and religion for much of world history. And when we open the book of Joshua, the Israelites have been landless for nearly half a millennia. And now God says, go and take the land. He's not going to move them to a place where there are no more battles. He's going to move them to a place where the battles are more significant, more strategic, more important. So Canaan is not a picture of heaven because there's no giants or walled cities or wars or enemies in heaven. Canaan is a picture of the deeper spiritual life. When you're reading the book of Joshua, you need to remember that God wants to move you into new territory. That doesn't mean if you encounter an enemy or a battle or a little opposition that you did something wrong. Uh, somebody said, new level, new devil. Well, that happens sometimes. And that's the book of Joshua. But here's the promise God gave to Joshua. Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given unto you as I said unto Moses. That's Joshua's promise. And so it's all about taking territory for the kingdom of God. It would be wonderful if this little section of scripture ended right there because now we move into the book of Judges. And the book of Judges has been called the Dark Ages of Israel. It tells the story of Israel's repeated disobedience and defeat and domination by foreign powers. The book of Judges is filled with idolatry and with violence. You know why? Because while Joshua knew God personally, some of the people that outlived him, they only knew the stories of what God had done. And then after them, the storytelling generation, there arose another generation. And the Bible says they didn't know the Lord, they didn't know His works, and they ended up following other gods. Now thankfully, God had mercy. How many are glad we serve a merciful God? So He would raise up judges to come in and deliver the Israelites. And then they would fall back and He would do it all over again because of His mercy. But the lesson of the book of Judges is that we are always just one generation away from spiritual 
extinction. Here's the scripture. And yet they would not hearken unto their judges, but they went a-whoring after other gods and bowed themselves unto them. They turned quickly out of the way which their fathers walked in, obeying the commandments of the Lord. So their fathers obeyed the commandments of the Lord, but they did not so. Many years ago, I read a book by a guy named Bruce Wilkinson. For years, he was the chairman of a company called Walk Through the Bible. And he told this illustration. He made it into a book, and I've preached it here in this pulpit. In fact, I did before I was your pastor many years ago. The three chairs. You see, those three chairs picture three successive generations all in the book of Judges. Joshua sat in that first chair. He was an active participant. He was there. He was walking through these stories, not just hearing about them. He was there when the ten plagues rained down on Egypt and delivered Israel from the grip of Pharaoh after 400 years of bondage. Joshua was there. He was there when the Red Sea opened up and allowed Israel to pass through and the pillar of cloud and fire led them forward through the wilderness. He was there when Moses held up his hands on the mountain and Aaron and Hur got under his arms and held them up. Meanwhile, Joshua was leading the army on the battlefield below. So he learned really early that the battle is not ours. The battle is the Lord's. He learned really early that some trust in chariots and some in horses but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Joshua didn't hear about that. He lived that. Joshua was there. He went with Moses when Moses climbed Mount Sinai to enter the Shekinah presence of God. The Bible tells us that Moses talked with God face to face in the tabernacle, and when Moses would go home to rest, Joshua would linger in God's presence, and he carved out, a relationship with God. Joshua was there when he and his buddy Caleb came back from a scouting mission into the future promised land. And Joshua was one of two out of the whole 12 spies. He and Caleb said, we are well able to overcome it. We are able to go and possess this land. Nobody believed them, but he was there. Joshua was there when they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. He knew what it was to live in a nation where they had a supernatural rock for water. Where they had supernatural manna to eat and clothes and shoes that didn't wear out for 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. He was there when the priest shouldered the Ark of the Covenant and stepped into the Jordan River and it parted. And he was there when the angel of the Lord appeared to him personally and promised that the walls of Jericho, that first city to be conquered in the promised land, the angel promised him the walls will fall if you will march and if you will shout. And Joshua was there to lead Israel to do just that. So the Bible says in Judges that Israel served God all the days of Joshua. And then Joshua died. And Israel also served the Lord all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua. And that was okay. Not quite the same. They hadn't lived through those stories, but they'd heard about them from Joshua. But after that generation died and went 
to their eternal destiny. Another generation arose up which knew not the Lord, the Bible says, nor the works which he had done for Israel. And that third generation, the generation that outlived Joshua and the elders, they followed other gods. And so years ago, I read this. It impacted me so much. You see, in that first chair, these are people that experienced the reality of God firsthand. They were the people that saw the miracles. And they submitted to God. Even though it ostracized them from every other nation and every other people around them, they submitted to God. They were always on guard against the slide from godliness to godlessness. They were always on guard. They served the Lord. They were a generation that was marked by commitment. In their generation, it was the word of God that set their values. They were dedicated only to God. And they were governed by a question their whole lives. What's right in God's eyes? If God loves it, we love it. If God hates it, we hate it. If God doesn't hang around with it, we don't either. What's right in God's eyes? Joshua's generation was followed by the elders who outlived him. Now these people, they knew about the reality of God secondhand. They were like tour guides in a museum. They could tell you every exciting detail of every exciting story of the past. But they hadn't lived those stories. And these people, they adopted convictions without understanding the depth of the experience that had formed those convictions. My goodness, it's mighty easy to throw out a conviction if you don't understand where it came from. It's mighty easy to change your apostolic lifestyle if you don't understand the price that was paid to birth the apostolic church that we are privileged to be part of. And so this generation was like that. They adopted convictions, but they didn't really understand them. They, they, they knew about their faith, but here's the, the thing. Their faith didn't shape their lifestyle so much. They did what they did when it was convenient for them. And, and the Bible's very clear. They served the God of their fathers. So on the outside, they looked the same. On the outside, it seemed like everything was okay. But because they were really serving the God of their fathers. They were dedicated not so much to God. They were dedicated to their parents and to their legacy and to their history. And so it was other people around them that set their values. And we see that today. So many people today, their values are set not by the Bible, not by God's word, but by other Christians. And they think, well, if so-and-so does it, if that group does it, if other people in the church do it, then it must be fine. They don't even check to see what the Word of God says. Other people, other Christians set their values. And these people, the elders that outlived Joshua, they were governed by this question, what's right in your eyes? It's like every part of their life they took a survey. Well, I want to know what all of these people think. I want to know what my family thinks or what my friends in the church think. And if they allow it, if they do it, then it must be fine. You see the progression, it's a downward progression. And the problem is that second generation people always raise third generation children. And so there arose another generation. And this generation, the Bible's very specific. They didn't know the reality of God. 
They were unfamiliar even with his miracles. Now everything's getting misty and foggy. And they had seen, they had a, a huge detriment in this third generation. They had seen all the hypocrisy of the preceding generation. They knew that their mom and dad, their parents, they talked the talk, but they didn't walk the walk. They knew that they could spout all the right doctrines and all the right catchphrases, but they knew when push came to shove at home in their house that mom and dad really didn't live what the previous generation had lived. And so that handicap goes into the third generation. They reject the Lord, that third generation. Why? Because to them, God is no longer real to them. He's not as real as the world around them. To them, if I can pull it into today, their college class or their high school peers or their work associates, that's more real to them. Or even the media world or the movie world or the social media world, that seems to be more real to them, more compelling to them than God. And so they reject God because he's not as real to them as the world is. And they end up serving false gods. In this generation, it's not God or his word that sets their values. It's not even other people in the church that set their values. This generation, the world sets their values. Joshua's generation was dedicated to God. The elders' generation was dedicated to their parents, to their history, to their legacy. But this generation, they're only dedicated to their selves. And so their question that governs their lives isn't what's right in God's eyes. They don't even bother to say what's right in your eyes. They just say what's right in my eyes. And that is the generation we are living in where we are actually talking about the logical fallacy of everybody has their own truth. If you've still got a brain cell in your head, you can immediately see how stupid and stunning that proposition is. Everybody has their own truth. That makes absolutely no logical sense at all. And yet, this generation is talking about that. Judges tells us that we are always just one generation away from fumbling the ball. But I have good news. God has reserved a first chair experience for every believer. I don't care how you get into this, when you get into this, if you are six generations deep or you're brand new to Pentecost, God has reserved a first generation chair for you to dwell in and to live in. So that's Judges. It's not a fun book to read. It is filled with enough idolatry and violence to just about make you sick sometimes. But Judges and this next little book, the book of Ruth, they were originally one book. Ruth was originally part of Judges, but it was eventually separated. I'm glad that they did it when they translated the Word of God because it's a lot more inspirational on its own. Now, Ruth was from Moab. She was an impoverished widow. She was a heathen foreigner. She was an outsider to God's covenant. She fit perfectly in that third generation that didn't know God at all. Furthermore, she lived in the time of the Judges. And the very last verse of the book of Judges says, everyone did whatever was right in their own eyes. What a time to live. Sounds like today. But God, in his mercy, used Ruth's life to tell a beautiful story of redemption and grace. 
She is saved by the love of Boaz, who is a kinsman redeemer to her mother-in-law, Naomi. And of course, that's a beautiful picture of our redeemer, Jesus Christ. But it's even more than that. Because Ruth, an impoverished widow, a heathen foreigner, and an outsider to God's covenant, a pagan from Moab, Ruth becomes the great-grandmother of Israel's beloved King David and becomes part of the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The book of Ruth teaches us that your history doesn't have to determine your destiny. And the book of Ruth also teaches us that the low level of the culture all around you doesn't have to dictate the level of commitment that is within you. She lived in that horrible time. I don't care what we're living through today. We can do this in the name of Jesus. Ruth made a decision. She told her mother-in-law, entreat me not to leave thee. Don't tell me to go away. Don't tell me to return from following after thee. See, this is commitment, brothers and sisters. Wherever you go, I'm going. Wherever you stay, I'm staying. Your people are going to be my people, and your God is going to be my God. We could use a whole lot of that commitment in this generation. I don't understand everything about church yet, but your church is going to be my church. Your prayer meeting is going to be my prayer meeting. Your pastor is going to be your pa my pastor. But best of all, your God that I met in that altar, your God is going to be my God turns your life around. Uh, three little books. They begin the history of the Old Testament. Then we move into this next section. Everyone say reign. So these are the, the books that detail the, the, the kingdom of Israel when Israel was ruled by kings. Now Israel's kings were anointed with oil. That was unique among all the ancient nations of the world and even today. That's very unique. Israel's kings were anointed with oil, so when you referred to the king of Israel, if you were referring to the king of Egypt, you called him Pharaoh something. If you were referring to the king of Babylon, uh, you called him Nebuchadnezzar something. Those were titles, not names, that applied to ancient kings. But if you were referring to Israel's king, you called him the anointed one because that distinguished him from everybody else in the nation, the anointed one. He was anointed to be king. The title for Israel's king was Mashiach, or we would say Messiah. Or in Greek, we would say Christos, or Christ. So that was actually the title given to every king of ancient Israel. Good, bad, in between, mediocre. All of those kings were designed by God. As you read through the books of 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. These human rulers, imperfect as they are, their stories are recorded to point us ahead to a future anointed one and his kingdom which has no end. So historically these books begin with the life of the prophet Samuel and then they cover the united kingdom when Israel's all together under King Saul King David, King Solomon, it's wonderful. And then finally they cover the time of the divided kingdom when civil war divided the nation into two parts. And if you're new to the scripture in the Old Testament, this can get confusing to you. Because when the nation splits up in the north, those ten tribes are called Israel. 
and their capital is Samaria. And then in the south, there's two tribes, and they're called Judah, and their capital is called Jerusalem. So when you're used to reading about Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, that can really throw you a curve. Because you're thinking that the people that are attacking Jerusalem, they've got to be the bad guys, but if they're in Samaria, they're Israelites that live in the northern kingdom. And so it just gets a little confusing. But your Bible probably has a map in the back that shows the northern and the southern kingdom. And if we're trying to understand the Bible, we, we want to understand things like this. That all of these books in the period of the, the divided kingdom, or the books of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, Israel in the north, they're God's people too. Now they're rebellious and sinful, and, but they're still God's people. And their capital is Samaria. And then in the south, Judah, capital city, Jerusalem, they're God's people too, but they're at war. Now, in our day, God's people would never fight with each other, but back in that day, this happened. Just saying. And so both of these, uh, all of these books end, they start with the life of the prophet Samuel, and they end with both of those nations, the northern kingdom Israel and the southern kingdom Judah, both of those nations end up in captivity because they are rebellious toward God. So very quickly, this is just an overview, but I hope it whets your appetite to dig into some of these books. Uh, First Samuel covers Samuel's life, the prophet Samuel, um, from a very young boy dedicated to the Lord. The Bible says about Samuel that God never let one of his words fall to the ground. If Samuel said it, you could take it to the bank. This book covers Saul's reign, First Samuel does, and and in 1 Samuel, uh, Saul is the king, but there's another young man coming up named David. And David is being persecuted by Saul because Saul is envious of him. Saul plays around with God. Saul goes basically his whole reign, not caring that the Ark of the Covenant has been captured by the Philistines. Saul goes most of his reign without building altars. It's very rare for Saul to build an altar and seek the Lord and so at one point, God takes the kingdom from Saul and he has Samuel anoint David in secret to be the next king of Israel. That sets up a major tension, as you can imagine. And Saul chases David, trying to kill him for about 15 years. And then this book finally ends with the death of Saul. Here's what the Lord said to Saul. But now thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart, and the Lord hath commanded him to be captain over his people, because Saul, you have not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. That's basically 1 Samuel in a nutshell. And then 2 Samuel covers David's reign. Saul dies at the end of 1 Samuel, and David becomes king, and David's reign is covered in 2 Samuel. A couple of things happen that are very important, in addition to all the great stories. Number one, Saul's king for 40 years, and he hardly clues in that the ark is missing. And David is king for about five minutes, and he just starts saying, where's the ark? we got to go get the ark. we got to retrieve the ark, because you can't have a kingdom of God without the tangible, visible symbol of God's presence. And so one of the major things here is that David brings the ark back to Jerusalem. And another major thing in this book is that David desires to build a temple for the Lord. David said, I'm living in this beautiful palace, 
and I would love to build a temple, kind of a palace for God, a beautiful temple. And um, God tells David through the prophet Nathan, uh, I, I don't need you to build me a temple. I don't need you to build me a house. You're a man of war. I'll let your son build me a house. You can collect the materials during your reign for, for your son to use. But God says something beautiful to David. He says, and as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, ever since the time of the judges, David, I have caused you now to rest from all your enemies. I've given you peace all around. You've conquered everything that needed to be conquered. You have the golden age of Israel at your fingertips. And David said to God, I want to build you a house. And the Lord turned that around and, and here's what God said. Also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee a house. David, I love your heart for me. I love that you wanted to build me a house. But David, I'm going to do one much greater than that. I'm going to build you a house. Out of your line, out of your lineage, is going to come the king of all kings and the lord of all lords, and his kingdom will stand forever. So David, I appreciate you wanted to build me a house. Let me build you a house. And that's what God did. That's Second Samuel. Then we go into 1 Kings. And of course, 1 Kings, at the end of, of, of 2 Samuel, David dies. And his son Solomon uh, gets to the throne eventually through some circumstances. And 1 Kings covers the period of Solomon's reign. Of course, in this book, the temple is built. But also, when Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam takes over. And the kingdom is divided in Rehoboam's day. Rehoboam ends up with the two tribes in the south, the kingdom of Judah, and one of the former army commanders of Solomon, Jeroboam, he ends up with the ten tribes in the north, the kingdom of Israel. And the kingdom splits. It's, it's horrific. It's civil war. And then the book ends with the ministry of the prophet Elijah. God sends a powerful prophet to speak to some of these kings after the kingdom is divided. Now there's a striking, kind of frightening verse in the middle of 1 Kings. God says this to Solomon. Notwithstanding, in thy days I will not do it. I'm not going to split the kingdom while you're living, Solomon. I'm not going to take it from you while you're living. I will not do that for David thy father's sake. There's enough anointing in the worship and the prayer and the submission and the love and the worship of David for me to hold off on judgment. So Solomon, you get a free pass, but it's not because of you. It's not because of your prayer life or your dedication. It's not because of your submission or your obedience. I'm going to allow you to be blessed because of all the prayers and all the worship and all the commitment of your father David. But... I will take it. I will rend the kingdom out of the hand of your son. There's enough residual anointing in David's commitment to me to bless you, Solomon. But it's only going to last for one generation. And then I will take it out of the hand of your son. You remember the three chairs? There was enough residual anointing in that first generation of David to carry the second generation, Solomon's generation, but brothers and sisters, in Bible study on a Wednesday night, that is exactly the danger for the third generation, Rehoboam's generation. 
second generation people almost always raise third generation children. And so I address most people in this room. You're at least second generation Pentecostals. You have somebody in your family tree, most of you, you have somebody in your family tree that was a Pentecostal before you were. They were an apostolic before you were. Maybe it's your parents or some elder that, that they got you in the church. The danger is that we can coast on their coattails and we can try to slide by on their anointing. There is a lot of collective prayer power that's resident in this local congregation. We've been at it for 60 years. But many of those powerful prayer warriors, they prayed prayers that are still blessing us today, but they're gone on to heaven. So second generation Pentecostals, it's up to us to pick up that torch and to pick up that mantle and to carry that anointing and not just slide by and say well it feels pretty good in the church. No what are we doing to affect the world around us and the next generation of apostolics. Now, that's far too quiet for a point like that. Because every once in a while, there just has to be something that stirs up. It may touch down on a Sunday morning song service or a Sunday night sermon or a Wednesday night Bible study or a Friday night prayer meeting. But somewhere, something has to kind of stir in you and say, I am not going to just be somebody that coasts in my relationship with God. I'm not going to be that generation that lets the world around me affect my priorities. I am going to be a light in in this world. I am going to be the salt of the earth. I am going to let what Jesus has done for me uh, affect somebody else. There's a danger in coasting on everybody else's prayers. There's a danger in coming to church and saying, well, some of the elders are going to carry this service. I'm just waiting for when so-and-so gets out in the aisle and when so-and-so takes off running or dancing. I'm just waiting for sister so-and-so to stand to her feet with her hands lifted. You are coasting. Church isn't a spectator sport. Church is when Jesus has done so much for you that you can't wait to get in his house with fellow believers and let God do something in you. I know we're trying to do a little Bible survey here. Sorry, Jesus just kind of interrupted that for a moment. I don't want to sit in the third chair. I don't even want to sit in the second chair. Not when my God has reserved a first chair experience for me that I can know Him, that I can know His works, that I can know His power. I wish somebody would let out a little bit of hunger toward the Lord. A little bit of desire through your prayer. A little bit of longing in your words. Jesus, I don't want to coast. I don't just want to be a church member. I want the power of the Holy Ghost to rest on me. I worship you, Jesus. 
We have a responsibility to our world, but we also have a responsibility to the generation that's over there in that youth chapel and down there in that kids club auditorium. We have a responsibility to the generations that follow us and God has reserved that chair for every person in this building. You don't have to settle for second best or third rate. God has an anointing that he wants to rest on your life, not just the pastor's life, your life, not just the pastor's family, your family. I wish you'd lift up your hands and your voice. That's apostolic. And your voice. And your voice. And just reach out to Jesus right now. Somebody, this is your first generation. You don't have any pedigree in Pentecost. You don't have any lineage or any history. Good. You can do it the right way. You can do it the Bible way. You don't have any baggage either. You can do it according to Scripture. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Yes, 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 yes. Oh, I'm interested in the lesson, but I'm not more interested in the lesson than I am interested in this. Right now, Jesus is in this room, and I'd like you to take one more moment and acknowledge him and worship him and talk to him. Oh, he loves it when he kind of sneaks up on us on a Bible study night and we're just expecting a nice little lesson and we go home with some extra knowledge. God doesn't want you to just have more knowledge about his word. He wants his word to get inside of you and impact your life. Oh, yes, Jesus. Oh, yes, Jesus. Oh, yes, Jesus. Oh, yes, Jesus. God never let it be said that you're going to let us coast, but we're going to lose the next generation. Jesus set us on fire with the Holy Ghost so that every generation is affected and your truth endures to all generations of this church. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Huh. Yes, yes, yes. Go ahead and be seated. And when you get there, clap your hands and shout unto God with a voice of triumph. Lift up your voice. Shake things up in the sanctuary of the Lord. Shake things up in the middle of a Bible study. We didn't come here to be educated. We came here to be transformed by the power of the word of the Lord. Yes, yes. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) 
I don't know what it is you're praying for, and I know you've said to God, I am so tired of waiting for the answer. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. I know you don't like waiting, but you're waiting on God. And when you're waiting on God at any moment, the miraculous could break through the clouds that are overcast in your life and change everything. My goodness. This is the kind of thing that we learn as we understand the progression of the Word of God. That's the book of 1 Kings. I know there's all kinds of tedious details in it, but that's what's in it. Solomon's reign. He builds a glorious temple. He's the wealthiest and wisest man in the world, and it looks really great for a while. But because Solomon didn't anchor himself to the first chair, and he was content to live in the second chair and tell the stories of a previous generation. That residual anointing ended with him and the kingdom was divided in the, in the days of his son. And then God sent a powerful prophet named Elijah whose ministry was trying to call Israel back to God. We move to 2 Kings. The successor of Elijah takes over, the prophet Elisha. And in this book, Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom, it falls to the pagan empire of Assyria. It falls first because there are many more wicked leaders in the northern kingdom. But eventually, sin catches up to the southern kingdom. And 2 Kings ends with the fall of Jerusalem to the empire of Babylon. So in 2 Kings, both kingdoms fall. The Bible says, and the Lord rejected all the seed of Israel, both kingdoms, and he afflicted them and delivered them into the hand of spoilers until he had cast them out of his sight. I don't ever want to be cast out of the sight of God. I don't ever want to mess around so much in my life that God just says, okay, you go do it on your own. That's what happened to Israel. There's a couple of unique books, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, that come next in the Old Testament. They give a little bit of extra information, but basically they kind of go back through everything that we just talked about in 1st and 2nd Kings, just with some extra, maybe additional information. And, and so some people that read the Bible say, well, why are these books in here? You just read through 1st and 2nd Kings, and then in your Bible reading up comes 1st and 2nd Chronicles, and it seems like you're reading back through all the same stories. But there's two or three things that are very key here. First of all, 1st and 2nd Chronicles focus mostly on the southern kingdom of Judah, because that's where God's beloved city of Jerusalem is. It's the place where he said, I will put my name there forever. Secondly, these books focus on the priesthood and the Levites a whole lot more. But I think most importantly, these books give us God's perspective on what was going on in Judah. Here's what I mean. In, 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 in 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Samuel, 
there, there's like just a, a mention in, in one chapter that the ark is brought back to Jerusalem. But in Chronicles, from God's perspective, there's like three or four chapters talking about the ark coming back to Jerusalem. That was a major day for God when the people brought his ark back to Jerusalem, the ark of the covenant. Here's another example. There's many. But in, in uh, the book of First, uh, Second Samuel, when David is king, there's a couple of chapters that detail his horrific sin. He should be in battle. He should be out fighting. He should be staying busy for God. But instead, he's just strolling around his rooftop after dark. And he sees a beautiful woman bathing, and her name is Bathsheba. And that horrible sin, that scandalous sin, plays out in the eyes of all of Israel. And I think it's two chapters that are spent detailing that horrible sin, that scandalous moment in Israel, that embarrassing moment in David's life. A couple of chapters in 2 Samuel. It's not even mentioned in First and Second Chronicles. Because it's God's viewpoint. And God forgave David, and so it didn't get mentioned. Do you understand how deep and how wide and how high and how broad the forgiveness of God is? I know you remember it. You ask God to forgive you of it and you're still tormented by it because the devil won't let up and you won't let up on yourself. But as far as God's concerned, when you ask him for forgiveness of a sin, it goes under his blood and he doesn't ever remember it anymore. Boy, that's worth another moment of worship, isn't it? Can you imagine everything that you're ashamed of, embarrassed of, guilty over, everything that was a scandalous moment in your past, every horrible mistake, every terrible wrong turn, as far as God's concerned, it's like, what's that? I don't even see it. I don't even remember it because he is so faithful to forgive us when we ask him. My goodness. Oh, that's second, first and second chronicles. David wrote a psalm. Gave it to Asaph for everybody to sing on the day that the ark was returned to Jerusalem. This is from 1 Chronicles. One of the lines of his psalm says, Be ye mindful always of God's covenant, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations. David was so in love with God that day when the ark came back. But then in 2 Chronicles, recounting the reign of Solomon and the building of the temple, this is what God himself spoke to Solomon. You've heard this one before the day the temple was dedicated in Jerusalem. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. See, that's what Solomon didn't do. But that's what you and I have the opportunity to do. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. That's our God. <laughs> There's more power in your prayer apostolic Christian than you ever dreamed possible. You can pray prayers that turn around nations. You can pray prayers that turn around cities and you can pray prayers that adjust all kinds of things in the political sphere because it's your prayer and it's prayer to your God. Now you know we're not going to do a Bible survey series without throwing in at least one chart. <laughs> so here we go. Doesn't that look complex? Aren't you glad we didn't start with that? Everybody would have ran for the foyer. I just want to show you one quick thing. The yellow line is the northern kingdom of Israel, capital in Samaria. And that's all the kings that they had in that yellow line. 
And then they went into the Assyrian captivity. But they went into captivity years before the southern kingdom. The green line is the southern kingdom. They had more good kings, more godly kings. And, and so because of that, kings like Hezekiah and kings like Josiah, they went much, much longer. And all the little spots in between, and, and this is the other thing I wanted to show you, those are all prophets. There's Jonah, Amos, Hosea, Micah, Isaiah. All the prophets, they spoke all in amongst this time. But yet, their books aren't listed here. They're not in chronological order. The Bible isn't arranged chronologically. It's, it's booked in, in uh, the books are put in groups of similar content. So most of the books of poetry and prophecy, they're in their own group, even though they were written during this time. They're grouped separate, separately. So tonight we've been looking at the books of history of the Old Testament. We started with those books about Israel coming into the land. Everyone say land. And now we've just talked about the books of uh, the kings, the reign. Everyone say reign. And, and so that's history. And at this point, the Bible puts in the books of poetry and the books of prophecy. Uh, th they should go here, but they're not here. The Bible skips over all of those prophets and all of their writings and all of their ministries and goes straight to the end of the Old Testament in another three little books. Everyone say, rebuild. So this is at the very end of the Old Testament. It's just three little books at the very end of the Old Testament. In these books, the Jews, after all of those years of captivity, decades of being in captivity in Assyria, in Babylon for 70 years because of their own sin, in these three little books, at, at the end of the Old Testament, they're, they're, they're put here with the historical books, but they really belong right at the end of the Old Testament. In these books, they're finally allowed to return to Jerusalem after that 70-year captivity in Babylon. The Babylonian Empire has now fallen to the Medo-Persian Empire, and a new ruler named Cyrus issues the decree allowing them to return. There's a lot of work to do when they go back because the city of Jerusalem and the holy temple lay in ruins. And there's a lot of opposition to face because not everybody is as kind to the Jews as King Cyrus has just been. And so we jump into these last three little books tonight. The book of Ezra begins with the story of the rebuilding of the temple. Despite long delays. In fact, it takes 20 years for them to do this under the leadership of Zerubbabel. And then the last part of the book tells how another Medo-Persian ruler, a successor to Cyrus, his name is Artaxerxes, and he sent Ezra back to Jerusalem. Ezra wasn't there at the beginning of this book, but Ezra came back to Jerusalem to teach the people the law of God. And this pagan ruler of the Medo-Persian Empire even gave Ezra funds from the royal treasury to furnish the temple and to restore the sacrifices. So think about this. At the beginning of this, a pagan ruler named Cyrus allows the Jews to go home and build the temple. At the end of this book, another pagan ruler gives Ezra money to go home and furnish the temple and, and instructs him, go home and teach your people the law. They don't even know their own law. God is using pagan people to bless his people. Don't say God can't do what God wants to do. God, God can get his will done anywhere. Now here's what Ezra writes to the people. For we were bondmen, yet our God 
hath not forsaken us in our bondage, but he has extended mercy unto us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us a reviving, to set up the house of our God and to repair the desolations thereof and to give us a wall in Judah and in Jerusalem. God used pagan people to just move history around to accommodate his chosen people. I don't know about you, but I believe God is just as powerful today as he ever was. I don't believe he's ever changed one little bit. And if in the Old Testament God could move the pieces on the chessboard of ancient history and pagan empires to set up his people for a blessing and for revival and for restoration, guess what? I believe God can move every politician, prime minister, president, and sovereign to do exactly what he wants to set up his church for the greatest revival and restoration that we have ever known. I believe God's going to do a quick work in the end times and I believe he's going to move around some pagan pieces to bless his people. God has never changed. That's the book of Ezra. A decade after Ezra's arrival, Nehemiah, he's still in Babylon. He hears that the walls of Jerusalem, the temple's built, the temple's functioning, people are living there, but the walls of Jerusalem are still in ruins. And so Nehemiah gets permission from Artaxerxes, that Medo-Persian ruler. He gets permission to return and to rebuild the city. Nehemiah is appointed governor of Judah, and he leads the people to rebuild the city walls in just 52 days despite opposition from enemies all around them. And this book also tells a little later about the preaching of Ezra, the scribe. In fact, Ezra and Nehemiah used to be one book together. And so Nehemiah tells about the preaching of Ezra, the scribe, which results in a great revival among the people. Now, Nehemiah is governor of this territory of Judah under the Medo-Persian Empire. And so he is recalled back to, to Medo-Persia for a few years, about a decade actually. And by the time he gets back, isn't it unreal? God's people have already begun to backslide and get away from their commitment. And so the book ends with Nehemiah instituting reforms and establishing the law and establishing the worship of God again and leading the people in repentance. It's just this never-ending battle between God and all the forces of evil that try to pull God's people down. It never stops. But greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. This is the New Testament. We have a secret weapon that they didn't have in the Old Testament. It's called the Holy Ghost. And with the Holy Ghost inside of you, you don't have to be subject to these never-ending cycles of, of backsliding and repentance and restoration. Nehemiah, when they were building the wall, the enemies came against him. Oh my goodness, just constant. Every day there was opposition. Every day they were trying to get him to get distracted. And here's what Nehemiah said. And I sent messengers unto them saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. I'm not coming down off my ladder. I'm busy. Why should the work cease whilst I leave it and come down to you? That was Nehemiah's declaration. I'm doing a great work. I am not messing with you. 
I am doing a great work. I am not lowering myself to your level. I am doing a great work. You are not going to distract me. We could use a little bit of Nehemiah's spirit in our generation. For some mom trying to raise your kids, you're doing a great work. You don't need to be distracted by all the mess in the world. For, for some dad, you're working to support your family and you're working to make sure they're raised knowing truth. You're doing a great work. You don't need to let the devil drag you down into all kinds of distractions. Sometimes you just got to have a little bit of Nehemiah in you. I am doing a great work. Devil, get out of my face. I am not coming down from here to talk to you. I'm carrying on with God. One last book. In this same little section, everyone say, rebuild. So these books actually, chronologically, they're at the end of the Old Testament. But, but all 12 of the books we're talking about tonight, they're put together in a section called history. So we have land, and we have rain, and we have rebuild. There's one more little book in this section. You see, in the years just before Ezra and Nehemiah, in that pagan empire, Medo-Persia, God allowed an orphaned Jewish girl named Esther to become the queen of the entire Medo-Persian Empire. She became the wife of a ruler named Ahasuerus. So he was another one in, the, in that line of, of rulers of Medo-Persia. Esther, as you know, she was instrumental in saving the Jews from annihilation in her lifetime. You know that story. It's the book of Esther. But think with me. She also had an influence on that entire empire that lasted beyond her lifetime. One of Ahasuerus' successors on the throne was Cyrus, who was the one who allowed the Jews to return home. Another successor of Ahasuerus was Artaxerxes, who took the royal treasury of Medo-Persia and said, here, spend as much as you want, but refurbish and refurnish that Jewish temple. Where do you think the seed of those grand gestures and those benevolent uh, plans and programs, where do you think that seed got into the mind of the rulers of a pagan empire? I don't have any doubt. You trace that line of rulers back upstream and you'll come to Ahasuerus whose wife was a little orphan Jewish girl and she saved her people in her day, but what she did in her day affected the generation following and ended up affecting the major world power of that time. She didn't think she was very significant. She didn't think she could accomplish much. But her cousin Mordecai said, Esther, if you hold your peace at this time, God will have his people, God will have a plan, enlargement and deliverance will arise for the Jews from somewhere else. But you and your father's house will be destroyed. Esther, what you do in your generation is so important for your generation. Who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom? My goodness, I'm carried away with this tonight. Who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Esther, what you do in your generation when you've been dead and gone and buried and forgotten... 
your decisions and your impact and your influence and your righteous living and your prayer, that's going to impact the major world power of the day to bless your people after you're dead and gone. You can't bless them, but your actions in your time can bless them in the future. We sit here tonight in a Wednesday night Bible study. We are beneficiaries of a legacy of prayer and of consecration and of sacrifice and of giving and of preaching and of doctrine and of holy living. We are recipients of a legacy that people just did it in their day to honor God. And they thought their influence would be limited to their little family. But guess what, devil? 60 years later, just in this local congregation, there's people that have been gone for decades and their legacy still lives on. Brothers and sisters, I want my life to matter that much that if Jesus tarries and I'm no longer here, somebody is going to be living for God because I live for God. Somebody is going to be preaching the word because I preach the word. Somebody is going to be praying because I prayed. Somebody is going to be living godly because I live godly. That's the story of the historical books of the Old Testament. There are some renegades and some rebels all throughout. But there are some godly people that in the middle of all kinds of compromise and carnality and corruption, they just rise to the surface and guess who we remember and guess who we preach about and guess who impacted the world. It's the people that made a choice to live wholeheartedly for God. And that hasn't changed. Have I got any people want to spend your life living wholeheartedly for God? Would you stand at the end of this Bible study? Would you lift your hands high and your voice higher? And would you just thank God for the privilege, for the privilege, for the honor of being His people? Oh, I love you, Jesus. You are so good and so faithful. We are so blessed and so privileged to belong to an arrangement like the apostolic church. I thank you, Jesus. I thank you, Jesus. Everything in Scripture points to Him. Everything in the Bible points to Jesus. He's worthy of your praise. He's worthy of your adoration. He's worthy of your worship. But He's worthy of your life. He's worthy of you giving your life to His kingdom. He's that worthy. He's that worthy. Oh my. Oh my. Join hands with somebody that's in your bubble and let's lift those hands and I'm going to pray for you before we go. Lord Jesus, I thank you, God, for the authority of your word. I thank you that even when we're reading Old Testament stories, there's anointing power in it. There's instruction in it. There's revelation in it. God, I pray for this generation of people. I pray for this great church. I pray for these wonderful families and these precious apostolic believers. Lord Jesus, let it be said of us that we stood high and strong and tall in our generation for the kingdom of God and for the word of God. Jesus, on these precious people, 
Put on them the worship of David. Put on them the dedication of Esther. Put on them the determination of Nehemiah. God, let all of those righteous lives rise up and challenge us and use us in our generation the way you use them in their generation. Let the church be the church. Let the church stand strong. Let the people who know their God be strong and do exploits. In the name of Jesus. Oh, I worship you, Jesus. Oh, I worship you, Jesus.